0: the water values podcast session 35
1: welcome to the water values podcast this is the podcast dedicated to water utilities resources treatment reuse and all things water now here's your host dave mcgimsey
0: introduce themselves. They're going to give a a brief one-minute introduction, just telling them who they are and kind of what perspective they're representing up here. And I also want to thank very much Dick for stepping in as an emergency fill-in for Nick. It's uh, very good. You didn't know what you got yourself into here. So uh, we'll start uh, with our first panelist right here, and then
2: we'll proceed uh, to the audience's right. Great. Thank you, Dick. I'm Tracy Meehan. I'm a consultant in Northern Virginia and a adjunct professor at George Mason School of Law. Um, prior to the consulting world, I was assistant administrator for water at uh, the US EPA running with the Clean Water Act and Safe Drinking Water Act programs and uh, uh, practiced, just practice law in St. Louis, but then ran the Missouri DNR and the Michigan Office of the Great Lakes uh,
1: in between. I'm Charles Fishman. I've had my say.
3: I am the Section Chief of the Public Water Supply Section in the North Carolina Division of Water Resources. So, we run the Safe Drinking Water Act program in the state. Um, I am here as a representative of the Association of State Drinking Water Administrators, or ASDWA, to help share the regulatory perspective of the middleman, because just like states regulate the utilities, Uh, We also, in a form, are regulated by EPA and have to implement what it is that they determine (laughs) that it is that states
4: need to do. Dennis Dahl with Middlesex Water Company. My my bio is in your program, and I'm the Nick Benedictus substitute. All right, well,
0: we'll talk a little format to start off with. Uh, We will go through some questions here for the first 30 minutes, and then I hear you're a very inquisitive group, so then we'll open it up to the floor for people to uh, ask your own questions. So uh, I would also tell you that we are recording this session to be broadcast uh, via podcast and however else uh, the NAWC would like to use it. So uh, if you do ask a question, please note that it may be used uh, in, in a broadcast format. So just a, that word of warning to you. Uh, can we have, our, as as you may recall from your childhood, If it, did anyone read um, kind of the choose-your-own-story adventures where, you know, if Jack and Jill, if you want them to open the door and go into the room, you see what they're doing in the room, or do you want Jack and Jill to go down the hall? We're going to let you, the audience, kind of guide how our uh, discussion this morning proceeds. So if we could get question one put up onto the screen. Rate impacts, not surprising. Uh, just there is a panel coming up on rates, so we'll touch on rates uh from a, a higher level, and let that subsequent panel really get into the nitty gritty issues on rates. Uh, but Dennis, why don't we start with you? Can you talk a little bit about what you see as the the impact of the Safe Drinking Water and Future Regulations on rates?
4: Well, it's a it's a actually a great question. And, um, I work closely with my colleague in the room here, Executive Director of the Water Research Foundation, Rob Renner, who's part of the program. Uh, That group looks at the science of water, and as we all know, uh, getting the science right requires investment. So first you, you conclude that a regulation is required based upon sound science. We hope it's based upon sound science. And then there are significant capital requirements that are typically required to implement a new regulation. Uh, we could spend a day going into that issue alone about um, whether or not those regulations are are required. Uh, different entities take a different view as to what level of, uh, of safety and reliability that they, uh, they would like to implement, both at the state and the federal level. Uh, but it requires a lot of cost to implement those changes most of the time. And obviously, you then get into all of the details about rate making and and the impact on customers and affordability. Uh, So it is, I'm not surprised at all that it was the number one choice on that uh, list, certainly for those of us in the room who work at water utilities. It's a big, big issue.
0: What are some of the concerns over uh, gaining regulatory approval for the funding?
4: Well, you look at the regulatory compact, our regulators have the obligation to ensure that they're adequately balancing the needs of our customers and the utilities. Um, it gets into all of the typical typical questions about prudence. Are, are these costs prudently incurred? Um, what is the impact on the customer, and how do we accomplish all of that in a way that maintains rates at an affordable level? And affordable is a uh, is a very subjective term. Uh, Charles, I, I loved your examples about the uh, the cost of water or the bottle of Fiji, and I even looked at the bottles of water in my. Hotel room and did my own calculation at forty-five dollars a gallon for the little ten-ounce bottle. Um, you know, it's a it's a it's a very emotional issue when it comes to rates. But I take, you know, people make comments all the time about the regulatory process. Uh, but frankly, I think it works. Um, my company goes through uh, numerous rate proceedings over over the years in our various entities. Uh, everybody knows their role. Everybody knows the rules of the game. You work through the process as efficiently as you can. Certainly there are opportunities to improve it, but it works. And our regulators, those of you here in the room, you know full well you have a very tough job to balance the political realities of those rate increases against keeping the utilities healthy and then keeping those rates affordable for customers. Huge challenge for all of us.
0: Sure. The water utility uh, sector is fairly fragmented. there are over, you know, around 50,000 or so water utilities in the US. Uh, the additional regulations seem to, uh, especially for the smaller utilities, have a disparate impact on, on how those utilities function. Uh, Jessica, can you talk a little about uh, what you see in terms of these, the impact of safe drinking water regulations on the smaller utilities? How Can they comply? Uh, what does it do to those utilities?
3: Well, smaller utilities aren't inherently non-viable, but certainly nationally, we see that with the economies of scale that are available for large utilities, they are more able to bear the financial burden of all these additional regulations. Um, one thing I think would be interesting to note is, EPA is kind of, I'll, I'll call it toying with, because they I guess they have some stated intentions of trying to look at how they regulate contaminants. And with the, the CVOCs, the carcinogenic volatile organic compounds, they're actually trying to look at regulating as a group, I'd say somewhat, for a new approach and maybe trend setting a little bit that says, okay, what can we look at together? And instead of perhaps having MCL set for each one of the contaminants, can we talk about more of the treatment techniques and use of best available technologies? And that would be quite a switch, I think, in the way that we look at regulating parameters—is look at what can we do to treat the water, and how should we treat water, and not necessarily looking at every tiny micro constituent. And as the analytical techniques become um, more and more able to find, you know, down to the part per quadrillion, you know, does that mean that the regulations need to drive down there as well? And so I'm. I'm My fingers crossed that the intent that they have on this new way of approaching regulations might spawn something that is easier for utilities to respond with as well.
0: What do you feel? Does anyone have a perspective on consolidation and how consolidation might help ease the financial burden and the rate impacts of of regulation?
3: We've seen that in, in North Carolina. There's physical consolidation, and that's something that actually our regional office staff do routinely is try to work with smaller utilities that are having a difficult time with compliance, and if there's a neighboring community, try to facilitate those discussions and even talk the large utility sometimes into it. But not everybody has the ability of interconnection from a close level. Um, We're seeing ownership consolidation of individual systems, and we're starting to see some management consolidation as well. We haven't seen as much of somebody perhaps buying the services of a larger town. That's a model that our environmental finance center is kind of trying to study a little bit to say, is there incentives that could be created for maybe a municipality nearby to take on the operations and the management without actually purchasing the system as well? But we haven't seen that happen yet.
2: It's been a long, hard slog. Uh, Peter Shanahan, (laughs) my colleague and friend from EPA, has been laboring in the vineyards for years on consolidation, and we're still over 50,000 community water systems regulated under the Safe Drinking Water Act, 16,000 publicly owned treatment works on the wastewater side. Um, a lot of people like to see their name on that water tank in their town, you know, and uh, it's politically very sensitive. And when you compare, say, the United Kingdom, what do we? they have? Maybe 10, I can't, 9, 10, 11 uh, utilities. Uh, we are so far from... Getting any rationality in terms of you know the economy of scales, that it, uh, it's very difficult, and uh, I I think one has to one could not be accused of pessimism for doubting how much more consolidation we can get. I, there are some useful collaborations you know purchasing, but we've got so far to go. It's it's really it's really a challenge.
0: It's interesting you said um, Tracy that people like to see their name on the water tank. Uh, and I think Charles did a very good job of saying, hey, our water issues are local. Is is the look localness of the water issues, is that holding us back from consolidation and, and trying to put things together uh, in terms of, of how we can creatively solve
2: some of these problems? Well, the way it happened in England or the U.K. was the uh, labor government, socialist government, consolidated, what, several thousand utilities? And then the conservative government, the Thatcher government, came along and privatized them all. Uh, there's no way that, that scenario is going to happen in a federal system like ours. It's just not. So it is all politics is local, as Tip O'Neill says, and uh, it's the same reason why our rates aren't where they are, too. You know, on the same topic, can I mention I, I have a slide that I think Alex can put up that would just kind of go back to the rate question. This, uh, this slide is from. Uh, friend of mine and a colleague in Wisconsin, Gil Hanch, with MSA Professionals who work with the uh, regulatory, economic regulator there to put this data together to compare average monthly utility cost. And following up on, uh, you know, free is not the right price, Charles. <laughs> we got it here in my hope wife's home state of Wisconsin. I'd love to see a chart like this for every uh, state in the union. Um, as you can see, it's sort of self-evident. Uh, you compare the various utility or necessary functions and Water, wastewater, and water at the far uh, end of the chart, lowest rates. There's a 2012 version of this slide um, that I didn't have, which basically bro- broke out landline telephones from uh, cell and data plans. And basically, landlines are uh, those rates are cheaper than wastewater, but not cheaper than drinking water. And uh, the cell data plans, I think, moved to second place after gasoline, but the basic findings the same. And uh, uh, I've shown this chart before. I I think it speaks for itself. Um, uh, You know, we can complain about this regulation or that regulation, but when when AWWA said uh, in 2012 that there's a $1 trillion investment gap over the next 25 years, that's a much bigger problem than uh, if knowing about this or that EPA regulation. There's a systemic problem of financing and supporting our basic infrastructure and I think this slide uh, this slide uh, demonstrates that very clearly
1: Charles you wanted to say something so um, there's a, there's a solution to this problem it's not a simple solution um, but it's the, the solution is to start talking to your customers about this talk to them in smart creative engaging ways here's my favorite example. When you, when you buy a Coke at a convenience store or, a, or, a, or at the soda fountain, uh, at, at the lunch deli, half the cost of the Coke is marketing. That is, Coke takes its basic manufacturing costs and doubles it. And the 100% increase all goes to marketing. Now, there are a few bacteria that were just created somewhere in the universe that don't know what Coke is and what to do with it, but that's it. There's no one on earth who doesn't know what Coca-Cola is and doesn't know how to use it. And by the way, it's not that complicated a product. And yet Coke in 2014 devotes half of its spending to marketing (laughs) the product. You all need to start a conversation about where the water comes from, what people use it for. Go out and find your ten largest water users and do a little profile of them in the water bill. Here's here's some really crazy ways water gets used in your community. Did you know that your water that comes out of your faucet comes from? Picture of the body of water, picture of the wherever the aquifer is. I I, I made this point actually right here in South Florida at a at a book reading, right after the book came out, and a, and a guy from the, the second-in-command of the Miami-Dade Water Authority said, you know, we did that whole bill comparison thing once in June. It didn't have any impact. That's the whole point. No, it doesn't have impact the first time. But if you want customers to come along with you on rates, if you want customers to understand the current way that water is regulated, what what is actually mandated, what isn't regulated, what the future might look like, what all that will cost. You need to educate us. By the way, the best place to start is your bill. Most water bills are absolutely pathetic. I have to work incredibly hard every month to find out how much water I use. My water in DC, DC water is actually a pretty impressive place. My water is measured in my favorite unit of of all time, of all kinds. The CCF. Now, there's an easy-to-visualize-and-appreciate unit of water. I can't even tell you what. C is 100 cubic feet of wa- whatever. You know, we either use 6, 7, or 8, depending on the month of the year. The water bill should look like iPad graphics. You're printing it anyway. You're mailing it home to me anyway. Tell me how much water I used per day. In gallons, please. Tell me how that compares... The people on my block, the people in my zip code, all the people in my city, nationwide. You've got all that data. By the way, as soon as you start reporting to me, my water use compared to my neighbors, I use between 5 and 10% less just because you're telling me how much water I use. You're printing the bill and mailing it home to me anyway. Make it interesting. Start the education process. but And I appreciate you all are regulated. Marketing money, I don't understand the details of the regulation. I'm sure marketing money is in a category that that is regarded with some dubiousness. But you regulators, your job would be a lot easier if you allowed the water companies and, and your colleagues, the water utilities, to conduct this conversation about where our water comes from, what we do with it, where it goes after we're done with it, and what's necessary to keep it flowing. There's a reason that a single iPhone monthly cost is twice what the water costs for the whole family. That's because we appreciate our iPhones. We grump about the cost, but we know what they do for us. We've completely lost track of the effort, the energy, the creativity, and the value of water. And you guys can can conduct that conversation. You can't do it once. You have to be like Coca-Cola. You have to do it all the time.
2: You know, um, David Zietland, who wrote uh, The End of Abundance, you know, has a formulation. We're trying to uh, load a, a business with 80% fixed cost into a variable or volumetric pricing uh, scheme. And, uh, and I, I thank him for that formulation. Uh, I, you know, the way I try to put my – wrap my mind about this is uh, I think we need to get away from the uh, commodities model of pricing – and try to emphasize a more services model. Uh, and I'd be curious what the uh, economic regulators in the room think about this. I mean, if you go to Jan Beecher's website at MSU, Institute of Public uh, Utilities, you know, she's tracking pretty well a 1% to 3% decline in water consumption. And Of course, you pointed back to 1980. We've been pretty successful at that. That's creating a bit of a problem For people like you or at least maybe your colleagues that are still looking at the volumetric pricing model. So, I mean, this very complex, highly engineered, capital-intensive, sophisticated system is a service. We're not selling sacks of flour here. Uh, And people don't get that. They think, you know, it rains, God gave us the water. End of story. Why are you charging me 40 bucks a month? So, um, uh, I, I think somehow, regulators and the industry needs to, you know, change this dynamic. And I agree with you, marketing is education, strategic communication. And, uh, uh, you know, I'll be honest with you, engineers are probably as bad as lawyers in, in marketing and communication. So,
1: <laughs> If they weren't worse, they, 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 if the, the
2: lawyers they wouldn't make be making three
0: times what the engineers <laughs> Jessica, you have some thoughts on that? Yeah,
3: uh, I definitely agree with the to previous speakers here. Um, as I go just out and about in Raleigh, where I live and meet people, when I tell them I you know, work in water and help protect drinking water, almost invariably the first thing that they bring up is several years ago, you know, Raleigh was in a pretty severe drought. Uh, the city Lake was getting pretty low and there were some fairly austere conservation measures that were recommended and some that were uh, mandatory as well but people's rates stay about the same, even though their water use went down. And that's what I hear about when I go out, is distrust now that they have. It's like, oh, you know, this drought, and this is all just a sham. You know, I, I reduced my water use, and my bill stayed the same, or even my bill went up a little bit. And I try to explain to them the nature of the fixed costs that are involved in treating water, that the actual price of the water itself is a very, very small component of the overall cost structure. But they actually don't trust the utility anymore because of that experience from the drought. So clearly, you know, Raleigh did not do a good job communicating to its customers what this uh, drought meant, what the impact of these conservation measures were going to be, why they were needed, and what the impact was going to be to them as customers.
4: Dennis? I agree with the perspectives of all three of the, of the panelists. And I think, Tracy, your graphic really, really highlights Uh, the issue in a a big way. Uh, To Charles' point about education, certainly those of us in the industry, we do quite a bit to attempt to educate our customers in print. We all know bill stuffers go right in the trash. We try to do things with social media. I find the most effective form of communicating with customers and educating them is frankly face-to-face, but that is very difficult. You can only get to small groups of people, but once you can spend some time with them, they get it. I'd like to think, you know, in the spirit of the theme of this this panel, that we will figure this out in the next 40 years. Um, we have, we certainly are becoming much more expert, all of us, at defining the, the problem, but the fixes are no simple thing, and it touches on all of the issues the panelists address. We we do a lot to educate our customers about the value of water, and I think about well, to what end? Well, we want them to be environmentally responsible. We want them to conserve where appropriate because it's not a limitless supply that you can expect will be there forever. But at the same time, my company is blessed with an abundant supply of water. And I was driving around our service terry this summer hoping that I would see sprinkler systems on because it was a very relatively cool, wet summer in the Northeast and it's a high fixed cost business and we need the revenue. So here we have this this conundrum, we need the revenue, we want people to use the water, we want them to use it responsibly, but at the same time, we have an obligation to educate them about how to use less of it. So pricing, the pricing model certainly is an important part of it, the education component is a certain, certainly important, and to Jessica's point, educating the customer about the fact that if you use less, it doesn't necessarily mean that the cost is going to go down. So huge, huge challenge. Bill stuffers go in the garbage. The bill does not. Correct. Some do. <laughs>
1: That's a different problem.
0: I, I would love to continue talking about rates, but I'd, I'd like to pivot a little bit and talk uh, more about the uh, Safe Drinking Water Act. So if we could, if we could put up question uh, number two, I'd like to talk about the. So, I'd like to take a, a, a survey and find out how many folks in the room know how many contaminants the EPA regulates. So, if you could take a few moments, to answer this question. So, nine percent of you got the correct answer, which is 91. Yes. So, let's follow up on that and talk. About, and let's put up question number two, or question three, excuse me. So you got to read this question carefully because we're not asking when the last time the EPA promulgated a rule concerning uh, a contaminant that was already regulated. But when was the last time that the EPA added a contaminant to the regulated list? So if you can answer that, 15%, so 2,000 is the correct answer, right? So I I saw Mr. Klein press his button very early on that, so I think he he was on it. But... uh, the reason we wanted to talk about this issue in the Safe Drinking Water Act was, it's been a while since a contaminant was added, and I think Jessica touched on it early in her comments, is that there's all these, these new kind of exotic chemicals and microcontaminants that have been talked about as being potentially regulated. So Jessica, could you just follow up on that and give us a little, an idea of kind of what's the state of the industry and in looking at Next round, if, if there will be any uh, contaminants added to the regulated
4: list.
3: Sure. Well, out of the 96 <laughs> Safe Drinking Water Act amendments, the process that EPA goes through to select, evaluate, and choose to regulate contaminants changed from Congress mandating additions to the list to mandating analysis and determination. So that's a very positive step. Um, you know, EPA goes through. The, um, I mean, you're probably mostly familiar with like the contaminant candidate list and a publishing of chemicals. Uh, it's all public review and comment, trying to determine if there's enough data, enough um, indication of health impacts to do analysis to determine whether um, it really needs to be regulated or not, ultimately, which that determination is called the regulatory determination. So EPA um, is working on its contaminant candidate list and we're working on the regulatory determinations. and have recently decided a positive determination to regulate perchlorate and a positive determination to regulate the carcinogenic volatile organic compounds. They have to make determinations on five contaminants. The determination can be not to regulate. That's an acceptable conclusion. But so they have three more to go. Um, A wide variety of contaminants, including the the perchlorinated hydrocarbons, MTBE, um, and if anybody wants to see the exact list of what they're considering. But there's gonna be chemicals coming out fairly soon. They'll make the conclusions, and then of course they'll start the regulation development process, come out with the draft regulations that everybody would get to see and comment on. So it'll be several years before we actually have those contaminants added, but they're more on, more on the way.
0: Dennis, any thoughts on what these, you know, what's coming down the pike and its impact
4: on, on the industry? The key, clearly, is to stay ahead of it. Uh, The more good quality communication we have about understanding what is being contemplated, uh, what may actually end up um, having an MCL implemented, the sooner we know, the better. Uh, All of us in our utilities, we our capital programs typically go out uh, at least five years, some of us ten years and and longer, uh, because we are planning for the next generation. We are planning for the next source of supply to the extent that may be needed. So good quality communication as early in the process as possible. And then we look to see what the impact will be, uh, what changes we have to make within our individual systems, whether it be retrofitting at a treatment plant or changes in the distribution system or using a new uh, disinfection approach, whether it be ozone or, or something to that effect. So it's all about the sooner we know, the better we can start planning.
0: What, what about wellhead protection? Are, are there other uh, elements that we can incorporate into this to, to help out in complying with the Safe Drinking Water Act and potential future regulated contaminants?
4: Well, looking looking at the, the various sources of supply, whether it be groundwater, uh, my company largely is a surface water uh, entity, although we have groundwater in our, our Delaware operation and some in, in New Jersey. Um, Wellhead protection, looking at, you know, safeguarding uh, the, the aquifer is critically important. Uh, being in a densely populated state in New Jersey where there's a fair amount of industry, that's certainly a big concern. We have had issues in the past with, with uh, plumes of contamination that have affected uh, some industries, and, and certainly regulation has been passed to help curb that. Uh, but it's something that we look at all the time. You have to be on it all the time. And the West Virginia example is, a, even though it was a surface water spill, is a great example. Uh, if not for the great work done by American Water in West Virginia, that disaster would have been significantly worse than it was. So, knowing what's at the source, knowing what you can do in the event that there is contamination, and being ready to deal with it uh, is critical. Our chief operating officer is here in the in the audience today. Um, he's always looking at what's upstream on the canal and. If it gets to our plant, how much time do we have to treat it? So protecting the source is is critical. Uh, You know, I I think uh,
2: it's a very healthy sign. We seem to uh, be seeing a renewed interest in source water protection, which is, you know, the nomenclature under the Safe Drinking Water Act as opposed to Watership. And uh, Toledo, I mean, you know, the Safe Drinking Water Act isn't going to solve the Toledo problem. That's a non-point source pollution agriculture Uh, West Virginia, a lot of other things needed to happen. Um, uh, I've been working with something called the U.S. Endowment for Forestry and Communities the last two years, working with a growing number of utilities and communities that are starting to pay attention to the forested landscapes around their sources. Some, of course, have been doing it a long time, like Portland, Maine, New York City. But the forest fire communities, Denver, Aurora, Flagstaff, San Francisco, people have got to deal with these things on a more uh, at scale in the watershed. And when you talk about these various emerging contaminants and we really don't know what the risk profile is or the vagaries of the regulatory process, protecting forested and landscapes, um, you know, gives you a broadband kind of protection for things you may not know are a problem yet. So uh, I, I think thinking outside just the, uh, w- while the, the, the source water protection amendments to the safe drinking water Act were fairly uh, light-handed other than mandating the assessment I think it did provide a good teaching moment and one we need to uh, take to heart to look at things that get out may, may get you outside your comfort zone getting outside your immediate you know operations or facilities but begin to work with partners in planning and zoning authorities on the whole uh, source water protection efforts Jessica
3: yeah what occurred to me several years ago, um, was that the idea that as we're doing the Safe Drinking Water Act regulation development process, okay, so EPA will do its regulatory determination and it decides to regulate for chlorate, for example. What's been missing in that process then is at the time that the decision is made to regulate, there's no work that EPA or anybody else that I've been able to find does to say, okay, here's a contaminant that we've determined is a problem in drinking water. Where is it coming from? How can we go to the entities that are actually responsible for the use, storage, and discharge of those products and get those addressed through the other regulatory programs? What happens is that has been completely absent, and then what we end up with is a Safe Drinking Water Act regulation where the first time it seems to be being regulated, it's on the drinking water utilities to be spending the money to install the treatment, to change their processes in order to remove this contaminant that might be in their water. And so I've been kind of pushing when I was on the a, a National Drinking Water Advisory Council. I was really trying to highlight that issue that says at the time that EPA is making a decision to regulate, at that point in time, there needs to be work that goes on with the other regulatory programs, both in EPA and outside of EPA, to address those contaminants and keep them out of the water to begin with. That's how we'll actually get better compliance instead of shifting all the cost burden onto the utility the drinking water side.
0: Are we seeing a convergence of... Clean Water Act and the Safe Drinking Water Act in that regard?
3: I think there needs to be. Um, I'm just starting to see it in North Carolina. We actually were reorganized and our water quality counterparts are now in the same division and I'm finding it much easier to have those conversations than I did for the previous few years. And so like for example, with the unregulated contaminant monitoring rule, um, North Carolina is very high on the list with 1,4-dioxane. One, 1,4-dioxane is actually a contaminant that's in our ambient water quality standards. But then when I talk to the people in water quality, they don't even have methods for this. So they have regulations for contaminants in the ambient water supplies that they don't even know how to monitor for. They don't know how to find it's there. They don't even know what to do with it but at least we're having the conversation now that says, okay, if we've got dioxane in the water and this is gonna be being regulated and it's at levels of potential health concern, what can we be doing now? And we are doing studies. Uh, There's a lot of sampling that's gonna go on and try to figure out where it comes from and it may end up as an industrial pretreatment issue. Maybe there's one main industry that's discharging dioxane and if we can remove that, then all these water plants downstream aren't gonna have an issue to deal with. So the convergence isn't happening yet the conversations are starting to happen in a way that they, with to demise scene, never happened before.
0: Well, we've been speaking for about uh, 35 minutes or so, so let's open it up to see if anyone in the audience has a question. Any questions from the audience? I was told you're an inquisitive group, so... Okay, well, let's move on to...
1: Uh, sure. One thing to what Jessica said... Obviously, way out, way out of my uh, uh, expertise up here on the stage, but you know, there was very recently this quiet movement to get rid of the tiny plastic beads that are in um, personal care, whatever that phrase means. That are that are in uh, all these skin products that people use, exfoliants. I went to our bathroom, my 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 wife's. Uh, uh, spot in the bathroom and my daughter's spot in the bathroom and there they all are stuffed with little plastic beads in. It. And I didn't have any trouble convincing my wife that we're not going to buy this stuff anymore but my 13 year old daughter was like, well, how, how can you possibly take that away from me? Well the good news is that Johnson and Johnson, and I believe SC Johnson have voluntarily agreed not to put tiny plastic beads in your neutrogena skin care exfoliant, whatever. As, as you can tell, I, I use that old-fashioned exfoliant known as a washcloth. <laughs> um, uh, uh, and, and, and that's exactly the point that Jessica's making. We've seen the same thing with pharmaceuticals. But if you take a step back and you, and you literally step into your shower or you open your medicine cabinet, across the spectrum of what we do today, a lot of stuff goes down the drain. Uh, maintenance medications. I take Lipitor. Lipitor didn't exist 40 years ago. only people on maintenance medications 40 years ago were high blood pressure folks. Now half of America takes something every single day that's a sophisticated molecule that they then pee out. If you look in the shower, when I was growing up, there was Johnson's Baby Shampoo. That seemed to satisfy most everybody in our house, including the women. Today, there's 20 products in the shower. And so if you ask the, f- the, the bottom of the funnel, if you just ask the wastewater people or the in- incoming water people, the drinking water people, to clean up the mess, that's not practical. And it's going to make their job incredibly challenging, and it's going to be expensive. If you go back to the exfoliant folks and say, really? Plastic beads? Is that what we need? One-time-use plastic beads? Oh no, we can use whatever. They use salt. They use sugar. There's a million things they can use. All kinds of stuff that dissolves away and doesn't cause a problem. I think that's great. And again, you all have to be willing to step up and talk about that in a kind of just the way Jessica did, it in an open well, you know, sure, I mean if you want us to take all that stuff out, we could, but maybe maybe we shouldn't put it in the water in the first place. So I think that's an excellent point. Don't 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 be the martyr. Join the community and say, well, why is that stuff there in the first place and is it really necessary?
0: Yeah. It's really that the one water approach. Taking one,
1: right. Draw a circle. Draw a big circle. It's a system approach. And,
0: and Jessica, do you have any thoughts on when we're going to get to the point where kind of, I'll just use polluter and air quotes, when does the polluter pay for all this?
3: I wish I did. I um. <laughs> probably going to be a while. Uh, It's going to be a slow transition, but it really does take all of you and everybody in the water industry who deals with Safe Drinking Water Act. When EPA comes out with its regulatory terminations, there needs to be some vocalization of the idea that things need to be happening before we have a MCL under the Safe Drinking Water Act. There's a lot of activity that can be done that might put the costs on the right place. So it's I've been saying it for a while to EPA, and, and they kind of nod their heads and philosophically can agree with it. But um, probably a, a regulatory issue, and maybe an in industry as well, is we, we, we have our silos. You know, we have our drinking water program, and they're generally a separate organization from the wastewater people. And we all have plenty to do already. So taking the time to have those additional conversations. Um, can be difficult sometimes, but it obviously needs to happen. But the louder the public cry is to that, I think that the more response we would
0: see. Dennis, what kind of conversations uh, are you aware of in the industry that, that are trying to have the, the water and the wastewater utilities work together on these, these types of issues?
4: Well, the, the concept that uh, you mentioned, the, and uh, Charles touched on it as well in his earlier remarks about one water uh, as you saw from the, uh, the survey question, a number of us in the room are both in the water and the wastewater business, and we also manage stormwater. And that's becoming more and more uh, the profile that we see, even across the municipals. Uh, so I think it, the time is coming, and there's becoming a much greater awareness of the need to look at water holistically, because, and then you get into the whole water-energy nexus thing, and I mean, it really takes it to a different level. Um, so there are conversations occurring, um, but I think even as, as Jessica indicated, not yet enough collaboration among the different entities that play a role in all those different aspects. How do you force those conversations? Not an easy thing. Um, but that, I believe, is what we need a lot more of, and frankly, relatively quickly. Well, great. we've got our first audience question, so. Uh,
5: I'd like to um, actually piggyback off of what Dennis has just shared. Uh, My name is Diane Taylor. I'm with Artesian Resources, uh, CEO. Um, I have three parts to this, and it's really not a question. It's more of a frustration, but it goes back to the, actually the question of how do we get more cooperation? But uh, number one, our frustration is holding the responsible parties accountable. And it's been an ongoing challenge for us and not having the um, governmental agencies step in with the kind of support that we should have. Secondly, we are now confronted with a new, um, what I understand is non-regulated contaminant, PFAS. And I know I've talked to Nick De Benedictus in, in Aqua in Pennsylvania, and we were required by EPA to close down two wells with, I think it was less than two weeks' notice. And our contamination level is viewed as potential but no scientific data that i understand supports this fortunately we have a many multifaceted well system so we've been able to work with this but in fact that's been a unexpected and, and a un, um, dedicated undedicated um, contaminant that we've had to deal with and the third part of that is that um, <coughs> I just forgot what the third part was. So maybe you could respond to that, and then I will remember the third part.
1: What's the contaminant? It's
5: called PFOS, P-F-O-S, and P-F-O-A. What and is and, it? Uh, well, I, I don't think I could quote those. It's <laughs> – uh, we have someone from EPA here. Yeah, yeah. It's a chemical. It's a chemical. It's a chemical. Okay. Oh, and that's the third part, yes. It's also – a product that's in many of the uh, products that we use on a daily basis, but we don't see that EPA is weighing in on. The Teflon or the coating on your frying pans that keep it from not sticking, it's the same contaminant. And we can name probably 10 other uh, consumer items that we don't see any kind of restriction on. So this is a big frustration to run a a water publicly uh, traded water utility with this kind of challenge.
2: Having uh, worked at EPA for a total of four years in two different tours, most of my service was in state service, that you learn very quickly that EPA is not a monolith. It's a very complex and differentiated ecosystem. I mean, just trying to get the Safe Drinking Water people and the Clean Water Act people talking to each other within the Office of Water is a big challenge, and I think it's getting a lot better. But, it, but then problem is things like PFOA and these other things could be in a whole different part of EPA under, say, TOSCA, the Toxic Substance Control Act. So let's face it, human beings like to stay in their own little stovepipes, their own little cookie jars. And to begin to sort of get that kind of integration across programs, I'll be honest with you, maybe maybe I'm just getting old and uh, it, it's got to be top-down. So you've got to look at where you intervene in the agency. You know, the Office of Water just doesn't have the authority to deal with frying pans and isn't likely to get it. We haven't reauthorized an environmental statute in this country since, what, 1996? I mean, Congress is in total gridlock. They're almost useless for any kind of reform or whatever way you want to go, you know, lightning or tightening, integration. So... Working with these statutes as is requires dealing with that part of EPA that's in charge of that statute. Whether it's the clean air accident with mercury deposition into waters, or whether it's things and chemicals in commerce, you've got to go to the right office. And so you got to move up the food chain and work your way back down.
5: Mm-hmm. Well, Dennis, to piggyback off of your uh, comment then, how do we get this coordination? Because this is a contaminant now that doesn't have a measured level of, of uh, measurement that dictates what... What is the level of danger? So we're in a position where it's not actually regulated yet, but we are now uh, closing and shutting down wells, wells which again are affecting other utilities other than artesian.
4: Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, Diane, and we we all see it in different forms in different places under different circumstances. Um, you know, if we if we know what the rules are, we can play by the rules. We we put the capital in. We we adjust our processes, and we we meet permits, and we maintain compliance. But where something is not yet quite a rule, but there's discretion that is applied by some entity or individuals about what you should do within your own utility, that to me that's a it's a relatively dangerous thing, um, and it causes the kinds of problems that Diane has created or, or has alluded. Um, Part of it, frankly, I, I always keep coming back to. There's there's politics involved, and and some of it is the public. We instill fear in the public. You may you may have some of you heard the example where where some people in the public have been surveyed, and they said, "Did you know there's hydrogen in your water?" Oh my God, we've got to get it out. Um, but but the point is that you know irresponsible irresponsible uh, things like that impact the public. That creates they, they start advocating with their local officials and regulators, and, and the politics tend to weigh in. So I don't have any easy answer for you, Diane. We all deal with the same thing. Uh, but I think removing politics from the process could go a very long way.
3: I think your question raises a, another issue as well, and that's one of the relative contribution in the risk. Who, who here remembers the proposed radon rule that EPA put out several years ago? The concept with radon is there was gonna be uh, an MCL for radon, and the issue was indoor air quality. That's what EPA was concerned with, but they didn't know how to get a handle on indoor air quality, so they were gonna pass an MCL that water systems would comply with, but they would be allowed a higher MCL if they created indoor air quality programs. So they were gonna use the Safe Drinking Water Act and water Utilities to push indoor air protection because the risk from the air was so much greater. I think you may be seeing the same kind of thing there. I don't know what the risk is from cooking in the frying pan versus the risk from the water, but um, when they talk about the the meaningful opportunity for risk reduction as a part of the decision-making process, that isn't necessarily compared to other sources that can't be controlled. And you might be being exposed to much greater levels with a greater health risk, but if they think that that taking it out of the water will help, they can go ahead and regulate it, even if you're breathing it or you're cooking with it. And
0: then that's, that's a serious issue. We have another audience question.
1: Hi, I am uh, Fred Klein, a partner with Pullman & Comley, And, and uh, I'd like to follow up on a, uh, an item that uh, Charles, you teed up during your, uh, I think, great, very provocative discussion this morning. Um, you talked about the challenges facing the water industry. You analogized it to the space program. Now, the space program had President Kennedy and the, and the resources of, of the federal government to push that program through. Uh,
4: in terms of the challenges facing the water industry, who's going to marshal the forces to identify what the challenges are
1: and to map out a program for solving them? And significantly, how is all
4: of that going to get financed?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I um, Thankfully, I don't have to tackle any of the hard questions in reality. Um, I mean, who, who's going to marshal the forces? The last thing in the world I think we should have is a water czar. I do wish we had um, a president who took the opportunity of the drought in California, the drought in Texas, the events in Charleston and, and Toledo. By the way, the, the, the contaminants in Charleston Toledo aren't on the list of 91 those water utilities found those and when I get the opportunity to talk to, to to ordinary people, I often say, your water utility is on the case even when they aren't required to be on the case. Um I, I, I do wish we had that kind of leadership, but but the truth is, and, and I'm sorry, it sounds like you're you're a lawyer, is that what you are? Yeah. But but no 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 I just wanted to I'm an engineer also, if that makes it any better, I don't know. I I, I was only clarifying that you weren't a water utility person. The the leadership is going to come from the people in this room and the people in AWWA and the people on your city councils and your state legislatures because you're going to sit down with them, you know, once a month and say, here's what we're up against. I mean... Just, just that example, I love that example the, the the BPA and the Teflon and all that. How much of that chemical is in the water versus in your fried egg? You know, it's not, it, it's completely irrational. You guys need to find a way of talking about those issues. You're here today for two days. Together, you have a lot of room, But you have to talk beyond yourselves. And just talking to each other doesn't doesn't get the job done. You all know the problems. Water has a very difficult problem talking to people outside of water. And that's where your allies come from. When I speak at universities, although in a a room like this at a university maybe only 15 or 20% of the people in the room would be faculty members, I say you faculty members have a responsibility to step up. And talk about these issues, which you understand in a way that that the utility people don't and that the ordinary people don't. You need to tap your communities. It's not, nothing's gonna change by a year from now. But nothing will ever change if you don't start changing. Ten years from now, you can be in a completely different zone. And so the most important thing is not to say, well, who's gonna do this? You're going to do it. <laughs> there is nobody else. We don't want a national water zone. The president is never with 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 the things on the plate at the national level. The president of the United States is never going to tackle water. And and it's you, you might find allies in Congress eventually, but the good news about water is you're responsible already. So no, you don't. You know how to figure out the inside of the EPA. Oh my God, just just those four sentences. You know. Maybe well, there's a seven-part series in unpacking the parts of the EPA that won't speak to each other. Um, but but the point is, you guys can team up, and 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 that means not not fighting about every little thing, regulator, company, utility, city council, but saying, okay, let's here, here's the big three issues, you know, let's see if we can get it together to to do that. I don't know what you guys do. AWWA does this event in the late winter every year, where they go hit Capitol Hill for a week and talk water nonstop. It's called the flying. It's called the water flying. I think they've done it three or four years. I'm sure it has zero impact, and I'm sure it has great impact. It doesn't have any impact on what happens with water in April in Congress, but you are gradually creating an educated constituency, and. And so I would say there is no one else to do it. You all.
2: But, but I, I think to that point, I think what, if I may, what I think you're getting at is we couldn't afford to do a space program today. The federal government is broke. Right. Broke. We, the presidential debate was all about a $16 trillion deficit. That was just the bond debt. Uh, if you look at the figures of the unfunded or the uh, liabilities for Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security going on, it's 200000000000000 I mean, uh, we're going to end up with maybe an Army, maybe Social Security and <laughs> Medicare, and that's and it. An interest on the debt, which is going to go up once the Fed takes the punch bowl away. So, um, you know, I think it all comes back to rates, at least when we're talking about finance now. But I, I agree with Charles. I think there are opportunities for broad-gauge engagement between the water sector and, say, whoever the companies are making PFOA. Uh, I can tell you, I was involved with an effort before before the regulations were kicking in on mercury, where we had a uh, mercury pollution prevention task force in Michigan that I chaired. And we engaged the big three auto companies, and we said, hey, can you help us? You know, we're trying to eliminate mercury in the ambient environment because it breaks down. And we realized this is coming from the end. We said, oh, we don't have any mercury. Go talk to the power plants. I said, do us a favor. Take a look at it. They went back, came back about a month later and said... We put 9.8 metric tons of mercury every year, this is in the early 90s, every year into the cars in the hood lights and the trunk lights, and we can get it all out. That's 9.8 metric tons a year, and they phased it all out. Now, they didn't tell us what they had in the high vapor headlights, but, you know, they were making progress. So, I think those kinds of engagements, uh, I mean, you remember the, the kids used to wear the tennis shoes with the lights flashing? Those were all, that had mercury in those shoes. It's all gone now. So... I think, and those through, there were no regulations. Some states, Minnesota, did regulate. You can engage pollution prevention, source reduction, industrial ecology. There's all sorts of theories out there about these engagements, and and I think they can get you a lot further faster than uh, a ponderous regulatory process that's probably going to yield very little. And it's
1: easier yeah. to do it today than a year ago, and then 10 years ago. Right. The, the biggest force for environmental change in the country right now, Walmart. Well, thank you very
0: much to our panelists. I think we've had a great discussion, and I, the, the thing I took out of this discussion was that it's all about communication communicating with your customers, communicating with people out in, in commerce, trying to get the contaminants out, and just looking at this whole one water paradigm. So, thank you very much. Please uh, help me and give a hand to our panelists.